welcome to the Comics Asylum podcast, where we explore the world of comic books, movies, television, and pop culture. My name is Steve Bino, and this week, Courtney Small from Cinema Access and the Changing Reels podcast joins me to chat about HBO Max, Disney Plus, and why fan service isn't always a good thing. Okay, so welcome to the Asylum. We are here with Courtney Small from Cinema Access and Changing Reels. Courtney, how has 2020 been for you? Uh, 2020 has been interesting. It's been a challenge for everyone. Um, I, I will say that, you know, I'm slightly more fortunate than, than others that, you know, I still have job. I can still do all the things that I love. I know a lot of people are hurting physically, financially, emotionally. So, you know, everyone's getting through it in their own way. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, if, if nothing else, 2020 has been a year where you have to kind of just reassess where you are in life and yep. kind of shift your priorities, whether it's um, familial or economic. Yeah. And it's, you know, as we'll discuss today, even from an entertainment standpoint, everything's being readjusted. Just the way how we, we look at life. You know, if you think about it, we're in an age now where about a year and a half ago, the idea of ordering groceries online was considered a luxury. Now it's mm -hmm. a necessity. You know, yeah. it's, there's just a lot of things have changed and technology is reshaping for, for better or worse, how we are getting through this. Yeah, it's interesting that, um, you know, art imitates life, they say. And I think 2020 is one of those years where it kind of stands out more than others. Like you could laugh at what we would have witnessed in uh, something like um, any kind of dystopic, dystopic um, sci-fi film like WALL-E, <laughs> just to, to name an example, yep. where you yep. said you're, you, no one's going out to get their groceries on mass anymore. You're getting things delivered. Amazon has drones dropping stuff off. Um, and for better or for worse, as you've said, it's that adaptation to what we have to deal with with the the pandemic as well as the systems that we've put in place for for decades um, to try to make society work and we're trying to we're actually realizing that some of them aren't actually for the best mm -hmm. like you know i i have nothing but mad respect for all the the frontline workers and not just the those in the medical fields but also just the people that work at grocery stores you know because yeah. there's a lot of people who because of circumstances finances they can't just pick up a phone and order. They have to go out into these places to, to get their foods. And it's, uh, you know, we don't, you don't realize how much that person who's giving you coffee at your local donut shop is risking their lives just so that you can, you know, have some food or a, a bit of comfort during this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because, you know, if you have a car, you don't have to worry about transit. Mm -hmm. um, all the things that put you, kind of in the, in the bullseye of what the uh, COVID-19 can do to you. Some people just don't have the option of, um, of kind of sidestepping the challenges that, that, you know, are in front of all of us. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's going to, it's going to be interesting because I think, you know, we'll probably still be going through this in 2021, uh, hopefully not as severe, but then we still have to pick up the pieces. Mm -hmm. Come 22, 2022 and on, 
there are certain things in life that are going to have to change. I think a lot of people are expecting, well, we'll just go back to how things were before. And we're seeing that how things were before wasn't necessarily that great. So it's, it's going to be a working process for, for everyone. Yeah. And, and I think too, um, the stakeholders are going to have to kind of let go of certain things. And we've kind of, it's almost like we're in a, um, in a relationship with certain things. And some relationships aren't great, but you stay in them anyway, because that's all you know. Um, and I think we'll get to this later, but even what's going on at HBO and AT&T, there's certain systems in place and there's certain people that want to just tear down the scaffolding and burn it and build a new. And then there are others that uh, don't see, don't have the same vision. Um, and then you have these competing, competing forces to see which way things will work out. And uh, I, I agree with you. I think there's going to be a seismic shift. It's just whether, whether we learn. And, and sometimes <laughs> humanity takes a long time to figure stuff out. Yeah. And I think also the, the people who have the most power in shifting things. Like we, we're, we're seeing a, a world right now in a climate where there's some people in power that realize you need to change um, systems have been broken for a long time and then there's others who kind of think well we'll just get through it and go back with what we normally do and you know as we, HBO is a perfect example and you know, we can definitely get into this a bit later but I, there are certain decisions that are being made that I think are short-sighted that people are only looking for the, the quick bottom line without thinking of future ramifications I agree with you. And it's funny because I was thinking about it this morning. Um, and in a way, what's going on at HBO was kind of mirrored in comic books in the late, late 80s, early 90s, what gave rise to Image. And it was kind of a, a, a group of creators who realized that the business model wasn't working for them. And then they branched out to create their own. And that's where you got Image from. Right. Yep. And then that changed, that changed a lot in terms of the industry and, and, and we're still, you know, living off of that change to this day. And I think the same is happening is going to happen with, um, with HBO max. I think we should just dig into it right now. Sure. I'm thinking of creators like Villeneuve and, and, um, and Christopher Nolan. Nolan who basically have, they created something, they've created their films, they've got the marketing things in place. Um, they followed the old system. And just like that, the rugs being pulled out from underneath them. And they almost have no say in it. Yes. And I think the HBO Max issue is interesting on several levels. I think that for the creators, I understand their anger uh, because they've worked on these projects they've they've had visions they want them in theaters and essentially their their children have been taken from them and now thrown onto this streaming service without their approval right uh, uh, you know the executives when you're when you're making these big financial investments there's a lot of dialogue you know they don't just give any director money to go make Dune or, or Wonder Woman, what have you. There's a lot of give and take. And even to get in that room to get those discussions, you have to jump through a lot of hoops and bounds. So there's a partnership that goes on and 
Warner Brothers HBO, or so I say AT&T, completely just said, okay, you're now a commodity. We own it, we'll do what we want. My theory, or my philosophy is, we could have waited for Dune. Villeneuve said himself, he was fine with pushing it back till 2021 in the fall, when more people could go see it. Tenant, I still think Tenant should have been pushed back. I know there's a I, lot I of, agree with you. I totally agree with you on Tenant. There's a lot of back and forth, and I know Tom Cruise was out there telling people go see it in theaters and whatnot. It's a film that I want to see, and I would love to see on the big screen, but I'm fine with all these blockbusters being pushed back to 2021 or 2022. There will still be a market for it. I think where HBO Max went wrong in their decision is you can do same day um, at home and theatrical release. That's To me, that's not a, a really that big of an issue. I understand there's financial aspects from a theater standpoint, which we'll get into. But if you want to jumpstart your streaming service that is essentially floundering, you have to do it the Disney Plus or Netflix way. Have certain properties, IPs that you have, and then just start developing stuff for it. Don't just take right. you know, something from an Apple cart and then put it in the meat aisle and say, it, it's good. You know, like I think that there, was, there was different ways that they could have approached it. And I think also by doing this for their 2021 slate, you will get a quick influx of subscribers. But how do you maintain it? Netflix has found out the hard way that after a while, new subscribers plateau, especially with streaming services. A lot of people share passwords. You know, Disney Plus had a huge rise just before the, the pandemic hit and got even bigger after the pandemic. But then what happened? They had a huge investor announcement where their stocks went further because they've introduced a whole slew of titles that are coming out. They only pushed what Mulan to, to streaming, which I have some issues with. I thought they could have held that as well. But, you know, they held Black Widow. They're waiting for theatrical dollars. You know, they're not that starved. So I think there's different ways you can uh, approach. And I think Warner Brothers and AT&T just messed up on, on several levels. I'm not even sure. Like, I agree with you on the messing up part. But I don't, I'm not sure if it's not just their philosophy. Like, you see it with certain sports teams, right? Like, other than this year, the Cleveland Browns are the Cleveland Browns, right? Miami Dolphins perpetually, you know, just seem to always mess things up past the, the Shulet era. AT&T, Warner Brothers, their rollout, even of their cinematic universe for the DC um, properties, almost felt uh, uh, like it was a rush to yeah. do what Marvel was doing. And so they're almost like trying to get a fully formed baby without going through the process of making that baby. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. And it's hard. Like it's really hard to play that kind of a game and be successful and then be creatively cohesive as well too. And you can just see the missteps that have happened with the DC cinematic universe, like wonder woman aside, I would say that that's probably the shining star of it right now. Um, but they're doing the same thing when it comes to, the, to, to HBO Max, where it's like they want to become Disney Plus tomorrow. They want to become Netflix tomorrow and be damned everything else that gets burnt in the process. It's, and a lot of it has to do with who the creatives are in the room. Because uh, listening to you talk reminded me also of Quibi, 
And I don't know if mm. you yes. even experience Quibi <laughs> yeah. in its for, for a format. second. It was for like a, a second, second a blink. but you know, they had, I think it was Katzenberg, some of the people from yes. DreamWorks who had started Quibi and the whole notion of, well, because so many young people watch content on their phones, let's give them a whole streaming services where you can watch shows in five minutes, six minute increments. They're going to love it. And they spent all this money gave, yeah. just started throwing money to all these industry people. As long as you had a big name, you were getting money for your project. And within four months, the service went kaput, right? Like all that money was wasted because there was no vision. Yes, people watch things on their phones. Yes, a lot of young people watch YouTube. But when it comes to, like, if you ever take the train or anything to work and you watch people watching stuff on their phone, they're watching actual hour-long series. Yeah. You know, they, they can pause and come back to it at any time. They don't want just the little six-minute sound bites. And that was completely, you know, miscalculated. And I... I agree with you with Warner Brothers. They have done this repeatedly. You know, The Dark Knight was a huge hit. Let's start our new cinematic franchise, Dark and Brooding. Okay, not everything needs to be dark and brooding. Right. Oh, Marvel has this new universe that they're making mad money, building up to one Avengers film. Let's just start off with our Avengers, our Justice League, and then branch out from there. Like there's, there's very little vision. And even in the DC films that I like, you know, I, I agree. I think Wonder Woman is a shining example. A big fan of Birds of Prey. There's some diehard people that were so-so on it. But those films at least brought something interesting to the fold. If I look at a bunch of the other stuff they put out, Suicide Squad, what have you, there's nothing really unique or interesting about them. Marvel succeeded because you had Iron Man, which was a character that a fair number of people knew, but he wasn't as a household name like Spider-Man was, or even the Incredible Hulk, in terms of people having years of seeing it on television or film. But the next film, Captain America wasn't like Iron Man. You know, like every, it got to a point where you could watch a Marvel film and you go, oh, they're, they're doing a magic movie. They're doing a heist film. They're doing, exactly. like exactly. the fact that you can have Guardians of the Galaxy come out and the average person not know who they are, and then it turns out to be a massive blockbuster because it's a fun kind of almost like Star Wars-esque type of film if you had five Han Solos <laughs> running around. <laughs> you know, like that's, that's, that's what works. Opposed to, all right, we're going to do yet another Superman film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to find another way to introduce a fifth person playing the Joker. Like, you know, right. they're right. just, you, you need that type of vision. And Warner Brothers doesn't seem to have that. They just want fast money and you know harry potter's a good example made huge money off of that franchise they've been rushing through five fantastic beast films the first two so far i think have been terrible but that's just me um and you just realize that they lack creative vision and i think that's what even in the comic book world you need you need creative types you need visionaries that will decide to come up with an image or dark horse and then come up with interesting titles Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that you mentioned Marvel's game plan because I think that's why The Mandalorian works so well. Mm-hmm. I, I would argue, and I know that we've had discussions like this before, I'm not a big fan of the last three Star Wars films, so much so that the last two I haven't watched. But obviously, you can't escape knowing what happens in it. But where they wanted to 
kind of be safe, but also expand on the, the Skywalker saga. I think there were missteps. And then kind of midstream, they tried to change things up after um, Ryan Johnson's movie, right? But where they've kind of streamlined it and figured it out is with The Mandalorian. And like you were saying, you watched the Marvel slate of movies, those 10 years of movies. You've got an espionage, an espionage flick. You've got a space adventure. You've got um, an armored um, kind of like technological film and many others. And Mandalorian is doing the same where they're taking either film ideas or really um, familiar kind of like story beats and just putting the Star Wars skin on it, as well as paying fan service to characters that may have gotten short shrift 20, 30 years ago. Yes, and I think Star Wars is an interesting study because I know it probably annoy a lot of your listeners, but I absolutely love The Last Jedi. I think that one of the, um, the latest trilogy was the best. And I would say it's even better than all the prequels put together. Uh, the reason I, I like that film is if you're going to do a film that is tied to the Skywalker legacy, The Last Jedi at least attempted to create new paths so that future films could expand the world and do something different. Then Abrams came back with the rise of Skywalker and basically said, oh, no, 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 we went too far. Let's go back and do the same thing we've done for five other films. Um, I'm including The Force Awakens, which I like, but the prequels as well. If you look at all those Star Wars films, they essentially try to recreate the original three over Mm -hmm. and over again. What I like about The Mandalorian, and I'm going to use Guardians as an example because I think for Marvel, it was the key turning point for them, is no one knew who The Mandalorian was before. Outside of, when I say no one, I'm just talking general um, viewers, not like the hardcore Star Wars fan. It was just, all right, it's set in the Star Wars universe. You can create whatever you want from there. It's a cool film as a Western they can add elements of horror. They can add cute little Grogu, you know, and you don't really need to, to like, you know, th- there's so many ways that you can expand the world because there's no vested interest. There's no, I spent years of studying this particular character. Whereas people have grown up for decades with variations of Luke and Leia's story. Spider-Man. Batman, Superman, if I name all the the big ones, you know the legacy. You can close your eyes and know how Bruce Banner became the Hulk. Groot and Rocket? Yeah. 2008, if I say, you know, do you know what a Groot or a Rocket is for the comics? Just, again, not to the hardcore fans. Your listeners are most like, you know, probably well-versed in the lore, but just the average film goer, they would have no idea, no clue. So with Guardians of the Galaxy, you could do whatever you wanted. You know, there's an established lore that the, the fans might know, but you could take it any direction you want. And I think that is what a lot of these studios and all these industries need to do. Marvel ran into the problem of as they got bigger and their films, as much as they were branching out, there was a certain formula that they had to follow. So every film has that same kind of Marvel Feel. 
Yeah. Um, the ones that I really like were the ones that attempted to do something different, whether it be a narrative standpoint or even just visually. Um, DC is still kind of stuck in that same rhythm. Wonder Moon did something different. You know, it, it, it went back in time, brought really interesting lore of the Wonder Woman and modernized it. Apparently the new one I haven't seen yet, but it's been getting great reviews. Yeah, it's, it's really, really, really doing well. Yeah, and again, it's, go, it's about taking things in new directions. So when I look at the slate of films that are coming up, and especially the big franchise ones, ones by Disney, DC, Marvel, um, Star Wars, the stuff that excites me the most are the ones that offer something new. You know, give me Rogue One, and, but give me Rogue One without Vader at the end. Because not every Star Wars film needs a lightsaber in it. You know, The Mandalorian is, is proof of that. True. Right. Like there's, you can have things set in, you know, established worlds and just show me different facets, different corners. I don't need the same tropes. I, th- I would argue the one thing about The Mandalorian, and I'm, I'm two, I think two episodes behind, but it seems like this season especially, they're trying really hard to let you know what timeline it falls into you know and in terms of tying it up with the other existing star wars lore, and that's why i'm a little hesitant on i still love the show um and i love that you brought in um ahsoka tana and i'm all looking forward to her own show because again she's a character that if you weren't big on the clone wars which a lot of people you know are not there's so much you can do with that there's there's so much breath of time that you can create a story out of but i don't want you know the mandalorian to kind of weave back into the luke and leia legacy at some point like you know just that type of of connections you don't need a star trek series that always has to go back to spock and kirk or travel various timelines i think there needs to be a little more creativity so you know i'm excited about things that are tied to characters that I know very little about or, you know, heck, She-Hulk. If, you know, just to jump to Marvel for a minute, they're doing a She-Hulk show. How long have we been reading about She-Hulk in comics? <laughs> and you think of, we've had 20 years of Marvel films and it's only now they're getting to She-Hulk, right? Like you, you can do three Iron Man films, regardless of they're successful or not. You could do as many Thor films as you want, but just to bring in something new and different it takes so long so I'm, I'm looking forward to just new ideas flowing and i i would love to see warner brothers do that but i don't know if if they have it in them i, I think what you're talking about though is the um the never-ending battle of creativity versus commerce mm-hmm. and these these franchises are huge money makers for these studios and part of the reason I suppose why they pl- they've played it so safe with Star Wars was they didn't want to mess it up. Considering, because, you know, I, I think the lens of time is, is an amazing kind of thing to look through because the prequels were pretty heavily, you know, they weren't looked upon fondly. Let's put it that way when comparing them to the original four, five, six, right? And through time, there's been a love for it, you know, massaged with the cartoons and whatnot. And so I can see a lot of these, these studios saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to kind of paint by numbers. 
because we're going to, we want a, a return on investment and then go forward from there. But you then run into the problem of creativity. And I agree with you hundred percent. I think this is a problem in comic books as well too, is that the ability to tell new and interesting stories gets stifled. Right. And I think if you're going to, if you're going to go in that direction and still stay within a certain, um, within a certain story framework, then you have to allow for different characters to come into the, into the scene, because then you don't, you don't have the, the legacy characters that people are like, Oh my gosh, you can't do that to Luke or really this person's connected to this person. That doesn't make sense to the people that have been, you know, a fan of, of, of a certain franchise for, for decades. Um, you even see it in something like bond. Right. And it's only when you get really good casting and really good stories that you're able to kind of to beat that back. And after looking at Disney's rollout, I would say that there are a lot of the series that I'm not that interested in watching. Like, I don't really know if I need to see more Obi-Wan and Darth Vader. Um, but I'm kind of interested in some of the other offshoots that they're going with. And then even when it comes to the new Marvel centric series, I know we had ha we've had a lot of Loki, but I'm really interested in that series, just the visuals and where they can take it. It's really intrigued me. That trailer probably is the one that had to be going, Hmm, can't wait for next summer. The most out of all of them. Yeah, that's, that's the one that I was most surprised by um, because when I heard that they were doing a Loki show, I kind of rolled my eyes because I feel Loki has, we've been there and done that with him. How many movies has he appeared in now? You know, Tom mm -hmm. Hiddleston is great. He really made him one of the, you know, top five MCU villains yeah, um, for sure. or just characters. Characters. I would say characters. Yeah. Yeah. Characters. But it was getting to the point where, you know, after, was it an end game? I think it was the last time that we saw him. Um, I was, I was happy that we were done with Loki. I will admit that this trailer got me excited because it again, took me to a place that I was like, Oh, what is this? This seems interesting. This whole world is intriguing to me because it's something different. When we talk about creativity and commerce, I think, studios and i'll put some of this on on us as fans i'll include myself in this we love titles and certain characters a little too much that we can't allow them to breathe so you use the example of the prequels not being well received the made over a bajillion dollars they still spun off a whole bunch of toys every product from toilet paper to toothbrushes and every time there's a Star Wars film, they always roll out the merchandise. They keep giving the fans, quote unquote, what they want because the fans keep demanding more of the same. I think we need to start as, as fans really saying, okay, we've, we've been there with Luke. Let us see some of the other Jedis. You know, one of the things that annoy me about the prequels is I got excited. I'm like, all right, I'm going to finally see how, what happened to the Jedis. You know, Vader came in. There must have been some real stuff that all these powerful 
mystical heroes got wiped out. And then for most of the prequels you watch and realize, oh, a lot of them just kind of sit around in a conference room. You know, a lot of it was <laughs> political bu- bureaucracy that yeah. on its own could be interesting. But for a franchise where, again, we kept being sold lightsabers and aerial fights in space, it didn't really interest that much, right? But yet they keep wanting to go back to that well. As fans, we've kind of been conditioned that Star Wars is Luke and Leia. You know, Marvel is Spider-Man. Now the younger generation is growing up with Captain America, Iron Man, and Spider-Man. Um, DC is Batman and Superman. We're now getting a little... Well, Wonder Woman well, was Wonder always Woman. there. Wonder Woman's there. Yeah. yeah. Woman's always been there, and she's getting played. But there's been a lot of people that have kind of been on the margins. So, you know, it was... You got, like, a Flash show um, over the years but he didn't quite get a Flash movie. But you think, well, DC has a whole slew of other people. You know, even the Green Lantern Corps. So you think of how many different Green Lanterns there are. We didn't just need the Ryan Reynolds version, right? Like, yeah. give me John a John Stewart, Stewart, Kyle Rayner. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like there's, there's ways of, of branching out. And I think where people got gun shy is like, you, you'll do something like Jonah Hex where you don't really invest that much creativity into it much thought you're just like ah it's a comic book title let's just throw it out there oh it didn't do well see that's why we can't do it but yet you've how many superman films have they been how many really good superman films have there been that's more of the question i should that's ask. that's the question you no know, listeners but but every time they say oh we're coming out with a new superman people oh who can who can we cast people mm-hmm. are arguing online about fan casting for the next batman film and you think well how many batman films have there been yeah. When you look at some of the big, big blockbusters that we've had, I'm just talking from, from a movie standpoint in recent years, Guardians, Black Panther, Wonder Woman. You know, you think, how long did it take for those films to come out? We've had how many Superman and Batman films before we got a Wonder Woman movie? No one knew what Guardians was, you know, pre-2008. Black Panther was, again, a name that some people knew. And it took forever to get that superhero. Yes, we had Blade, but even Blade has been kind of pushed to the margins. And you think, if anything, Blade was one of the big trendsetters in terms of showing that superhero films could be bankable. Blade, right? Blade was the start. This doesn't yeah. happen without Blade. You know, and there's... I know they've tried with, with Punisher. I still think, was it Punisher Warzone is probably the best... Yeah, probably. Uh, Punisher film, but I know they had the series and whatnot. Like there's certain characters in comic books where you think of like these companies have a massive wealth of stories to tell, but yet we're told that only doing Spider-Man is bankable. So my son grows up now watching the latest Spider-Man cartoon with Spider-Man, Gwen and Miles Morales, but he's still being indoctrinated into the Peter Parker lore. You know, they're still making sure that that is what he he knows for. And then the other two are more like sidekicks, right? Opposed to saying, well, there's other people in this world, right? Like every generation, we keep recycling the same thing because we want those five or six IPs to be what holds the industry up. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because I think of the first stab of a DC property, which is Watchmen. And... You can look at the film any way you want, 
but there's no denying how good that series was that came out recently. Like that, that yep. was just really well done, well cast, faithful to the original movie and to the graphic novel. And again, with the right people behind it and a solid story, you can make anything work. And I think, and I think that is, that's the key is just letting the creatives or that visionary mind, like a, a Kevin Feige, someone like that, just let them run with it and, and create that world. And the fans will come like, like the very, the very fact that they have to go to the well for, I think in my lifetime, there've been more Batmans than Bonds is, uh, am I, am I close to that? Maybe close. If you think that Keaton's Batman, it was Keaton. Um, there's been Bale, Clooney, um, Kilmer. Oh yeah, yeah. Right, like there, there's been a and lot Patterson of Batman. Patterson, but when you think about it, there've been seven Bonds, but there haven't been seven Bond origin movies. And essentially, you've got every time there's a new Batman, it's almost like it's a new origin. Even with the the um, the latest Justice League, you had to go back mm-hmm. and show Crime Alley. Like I, I think you can. You can kind of forego that. You don't need to see Krypton, right? Yeah. Paradise Island, yes, because you've only really had two um, interpretations of Wonder Woman. But you didn't even have to watch that first Watchmen movie to understand exactly what was going on. And they were able to tie in real history into the fabric of their imaginary world and made it really, really, really heavy and made it hit properly. Yeah. And also by doing that, you connect with a whole new and more lucrative audience. Like I'll say one of the problems that studios have, and I, and again, part of this has to do with, with us as fans is fans can be very vocal, especially in this online world that we live in. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people try and, um, I guess, compare online noise to, to profitability. And it doesn't always work that way. Just because everyone online is joking and having a great time about the idea of snakes on a plane, doesn't mean that when you make snakes on a plane with the fans input, it's actually going to be a good movie. Right? Like it's, you know, there's, and I think that often because they want the built-in audience, the, the fans give them more of what they want if you don't introduce other options, people actually get tired of, of the same old, same old. And yes, there are tons of fans that want the Luke story to be a certain way. In their vision, it can only be one way because they've spent 30 years of their lives rewatching Jedi on VHS, DVD, Blu-ray, Laserdisc, what have you. So they have convinced themselves it must only be this way. What, you're, what they're forgetting is that there's a wealth of ideas outside of that myopic view. Watchmen is a great example that I know a lot of people who love that series, never read the, the graphic novel, did not watch the movie. And by also putting in real history, you know, there's, there's one episode that even shook me mm. to the core in that one where, you, you know, you're actually put in, a person you actually feel like you're in a person's shoes yes. you know as the character is in someone else's shoes and you're experiencing a, a, a section of history from a perspective that you've read about anything but when you really think about it and you're kind of placed in there 
it's really chilling. And especially with what's going on in 2020 and, you know, the racial reckoning, if you will, it added a certain layer that when you go back to that and you watch it, like it's one of the reasons I love Black Panther. You know, I, people may argue, oh, it's overrated, what have you. Black Panther was, I would argue, the only Marvel film that actually made me really think of real world issues. And, oh, for sure. For sure. You know, I know Captain America, Winter Soldier tried to put in issues about government control and big government, but it was still done in a very popcorn, popcorn digestible way that you could forget about it. Whereas I'm watching Black Panther and I'm thinking about Killmonger and as a villain, his idea is completely flawed. It's going to blow up in his face. You know, it's a horrible plan, but I understood his motivation. I understood the anger that would come from having to endure a life and knowing that there are people that look like you in another country that had the resources to possibly end slavery, possibly, you know, end Jim Crow, what have you, the finances. And they just said, mm, we're going to keep our, to ourselves. You know, I could understand that type of rage. That's something that you don't normally get in any other Marvel film. You know, I know Ant-Man is more of like, fun what have you thor even with the greek mythology i still didn't connect with it on a truly deep level as much as i love thor ragnarok i think it's a great film but yeah you know it didn't i didn't walk away thinking about it and even now i still think about some of those scenes in black panther i still think about watchmen and again it just shows a different facet to what you can do so you can still have your end games where everyone's together just big massive um cinematic experience you could have your thought-provoking superhero films. You know, it doesn't even, they don't even have to be big budget popcorn. Like I would love to start seeing some, you know, properties from Marvel and DC that aren't just big explosion and fights. Like give me, give me like a Jessica Jones, but on the, the big screen where mm -hmm. you have to minimize the, the type of action that you get. It's more psychological, you know, like, there's, I know they tried to do that with, um, I guess it was the New Mutants, which I haven't seen, yes. but I've heard was, you know, was horrible. It's, it's kind of interesting because I might be in the minority on that one. I, considering that the way the X-Men have been just handled, other than Wolverine, I, I think it's a mixed bag, right? Mm. They, they did a decent job. They did a decent job um, kind of representing the characters. Um, the actress's name escapes me, but she was, she plays um, magic and she was in the queen's gambit. Okay. She was perfectly cast. Right. And maybe it's because I'm not a hardcore X-Men fan that I don't, I don't have that, those legacy problems. Like I would like, you know, if they did something to, to Spider-Man or something along those lines, but I took it for what it was and I enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. And right? I heard they were supposed to bring more of like a horror aspect. To it, it was a complete horror film. Okay. All right. It's a complete horror film. If you're going expecting X2, but with teenagers, with it like Teen Titans X2, it's not going to work. That It's not going to work for you. It's a completely different kind of film. Yeah. But the, in many ways, those are the risks that you need to take. Absolutely. Like I know people will look at it and say, oh, it was a failure, waste of money. You shouldn't have done that. They tried to do that with Fantastic Four, the Josh Trank version in terms of making it a much darker mm -hmm version of what happens and you know it bombed because that film has problems yes. left and right <laughs> yes. but and i mean we can 
we can get into a, another conversation another day about how a person like Josh Rank could even get Fantastic mm. Four after being kicked off of Star Wars. And, right. You know, who has the privilege to get ahead in, in the industry. But the point is, they're still making another Fantastic Four film. You know, they, they've announced they're making a brand new one, right? And you think of, okay, we've had three Fantastic Four films so far, and they haven't been that good, at least in my opinion, but yet they're going to keep doing it because they figure, well, this is a beloved property. The fans keep wanting it. It's like, well, if you've given the fans three horrible films so far, maybe you should stop doing Fantastic Four for a while. Maybe give the fans something that they haven't gotten before. And as fans, we need to stop just demanding that we have another Fantastic Four film. Say, okay, you've, you've messed it up three times now. Let's take a break. How about you try something else? Like I'm always more interested when you take a, a side character or someone off the roster that hasn't been in a gazillion movies and just do whatever you want with it. Like, you know, Luke Cage is a perfect example. If you're a fan of comic books, you know who Luke Cage is. But there was a lot of people who didn't know who Luke Cage was before Netflix. They didn't know who Jessica Jones was. Even Daredevil to a certain extent. I know he's had a bunch, a couple of movies. They were all still mid-tier characters or below-tier characters in terms of the average person's conscious. And yet those shows did quite well when they, when they launched on Netflix because you offered people something different, something new. We're not going to talk about Iron Fist because that was just preposterous, but <laughs> you know. Iron, but Iron, Fist, point, Iron Fist should have gone to Into the Badlands to train and then it would have been a yes. completely different story. It would have been a success, right? Yes. It needed that kind of flavor, personally. Or I would have been happy with halfway through the series, they've realized that Colleen Wing and Misty Knight are actually the most interesting individuals. Characters. Let's just yes. give them their own show and pretend Absolutely. Iron Fist, you know, got trapped in customs or what have you. <laughs> but the point is you still have a lot more room to grow. You know, I'm sure there was stuff that they threw in for hardcore Daredevil fans, Luke Cage fans, Jessica Jones, but you need to branch out and expand your audience. And this is something that Disney is doing and they're allowed to do partly because they own everything. Yeah, Disney, they just, again, they have Pixar, they have Marvel, they have Star Wars. So even though they're still playing within the existing IP and still kind of recycling the same type of universes and stories, they could at least bring in new characters like the Mandalorian and find different ways to take it. If right. you're not Disney and you're Warner Brothers or any of the other studios, this is a time where you have to get creative. You have to go back and be essentially Kevin Feige and Marvel in 2008 and say, all right, we're going to do these bunch of films. They're going to be different. Oh, they're a big success. Let's try and put them together and, mm -hmm. and go from there. Like this is, you know, you, again, I'm using that as a, as a constant example, but you need your guardians. You need stuff. You need your guardians. You need your Mandalorians. Things that people aren't that familiar with or the average person doesn't know because that's how you're going to generate new subscribers. I don't know after 2021 how many people are going to be rushing to HBO Max for, you know, whatever their next big slate is. I think having stuff to streaming services and the invention of streaming services is great because it opens up accessibility for a lot of people. Um, just people with disabilities who can't make it to theaters 
Exactly. Yeah. There's also a whole bunch of people that don't have mega plexes in, in their, in their towns or communities. They might only have one local theater that you can only show two films a week, you know, so they get a chance to see certain things. They, they might join up for a, a streaming service, what have you, but at the same time, they still need something more to entice them. Like you drop Wonder Woman now. That's great. Are you introducing any new characters or am I just supposed to sit back and wait till Wonder Woman three comes out? If Wonder Woman one and two are great, do I even need a third Wonder Woman? Like, you know, you've, you've set the bar now let's give me, give me something different. So I don't, I, I would love to see more creativity and I'm of the mind that creativity breeds commerce and not the other way around. I think people think commerce is what's most important and it'll generate creativity and it doesn't work that way. Well, I would, I would agree with you and go back to the seventies because if you take a look at the auteurs in the seventies, they made damn good films and we've been reaping the benefits out of that decade since when you look at the Spielbergs, close encounters, um, Jaws, you look at Lucas, De Palma, uh, Scorsese, like just a, a, a plethora of films came out of that decade. And since then, they've been trying to recapture that magic. And, and then you, you throw in Lucas's ability to then actually have merchandise <laughs> and go yeah. cross-platform. Um, you can see how it's not just about making films. And I, and, and I want to then slide to another topic a bit later, sure. but you can see that it's almost like the industry is so big that there's no room for small and medium sized hits when you're dealing with, you know, tent pole movies, they all have to be like, there's almost like an arms race for box office. Yes, but I would, I think the problem is, and how, how do I phrase this? I think we've, we've reached um, an Amazon approach to entertainment whether it be comic books or uh, movie television, where you have one or two major corporations and they've got their tentacles in everything. So because you are, you know, Warner Brothers and you're owned by AT&T, we have to create something that we can now sell to our cell phone subscribers our cable people are going to need to be able to access this when it comes out. Oh, we're going to need merchandise for this. Like you start to, to pick away at the product and then the product doesn't really have that much value. So you were saying there's, you know, there's not enough room for mid-level releases. I would argue that we need more mid-level releases. Because I agree. What we're, what they're giving us is a whole bunch of tent poles, but the tents aren't made with actual, they're, they're not sturdy. You know, you, you've Agreed. given me Wonder Woman um, 1984, which by all accounts, good sturdy tent. But to get to that, I, you think of how many movies come out in a year and I have to sit through a whole slew of stuff that's going to open up one weekend, may possibly do well, and then disappear. So, you know, they've put all their money into the opening weekend box office and will it sell overseas in the, in the Asian market? And for years they kept telling us, well, 
it needs to be Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, what have you, because we got to think of the Asian market. They need big stars. And then we just quietly sat back and watched us like the Fast and Furious franchise made billions of dollars and was a huge hit in the Asian market. And it didn't have like, you know, Vin Diesel is no Tom Hanks. He no. is not, um, he's not even Tom Cruise level of stardom. And we, we keep seeing stuff like that. Black Panther was another one. Oh, films with African-American leads do not do well overseas. Well, have you tried opening them? Because Black Panther just showed you, you can make a ton of money. It's just the, the people are deciding that the temples must be X. And the temple can be Superman Returns and do poorly at the box office compared to all the money that they spent in terms of marketing, just the overall production. And then they'll turn around and go, let's make Man of Steel. Five, it's, it's time to bring back Man of Steel. So if everything's a big tent and these tents are properties where you can't, you know, they have to be surefire hits. Why is it that when they don't do well, you find a way to repackage that same tent and sell it back out? Whereas something that's quote unquote mid-level, which could possibly do quite well, uh, you know, let's put it to streaming service or I don't know, it's a little too risky of a venture. Like they, they take risk on certain things that you keep doing it over and over again and they figure at some point it will hit. Fantastic. For uh, Ghostbusters, like name a certain a property from your childhood and they're going to try and resell it to you 15 times. Whereas instead of doing something unique and going, all right, mid-level, it did, it got a bit of attraction. Let's see if we can expand on that a little more. No, no, let's waste more money and just recycle the same. It's, it's the mindset of, we knew this worked in the past. We just messed up the last attempt at it. So we'll get other people and do it again, as opposed to let's just make good stories and let the audience find them. And it's kind of interesting because I was, I, I want to step sideways a little bit. I was on Twitter and just checking out some of the, the, um, I guess, social media backlash with some of the casting decisions for Ms. Marvel. Mm -hmm. um, and you had mentioned that sometimes it's the fans that the things that we ask for as fans can get in the way of some of these, some of these productions. And then I was kind of conflicted looking at Ms. Marvel because the representation should be right. But then where do you stop and let the, pro the, the product be made and then fix it? later on in the second duration, you know, um, like where, where, where do you find that, that line? What's, what's your take on that? See, I think that is a, a tough one. And I think Ms. Marvel is a very interesting case study because by your reasoning, you're assuming they're going to give Ms. Marvel a second and third chance to fix things. Whereas because Miss Marvel is such a niche character, and I use that term only in the sense that she is not as well known. And she is, if I, if I remember correctly, the first major Muslim American superhero in the Marvel Universe. As far as I can, can gather, yes. Yeah, not, not in comics, but just in the Marvel Universe. Universe. Yeah. There's, a, there's so much more pressure on to get it right. Right. Um, some of the casting quibbles that people had, you know, I, 
I'm a little torn on. Like if you know there was uprising because a particular actor is a noted Trump supporter online, that there's not much you can do about that um, from a from a hiring standpoint. You know, if someone has a different political view, that's not a fireable offense. If they're spouting hate or doing other things online, that's fine. The the idea of getting a, an actor or actress who is you know, a, a Muslim who is of Pakistani descent is, is great. I'm completely for it. If they had, did the actual due process and auditioned a whole bunch, but this other actor who might be Christian um, and not Pakistani really knocked it out of the park and you can... Um, you know, do something with it, then okay, let's see how it goes. But at the same time, I also think, well, how many people did you really bring into the casting process? Right? Like there's, it's, I think where a lot of the issues come in is who's in the room making the decisions and who's holding these casting calls. Um, I know there will be people and some of your listeners might be, oh, well, it's acting. It's, it's acting. It's about who's, who's the best actor for the job. And I say, okay, cool then can we expand who plays James Bond or Peter Parker? Because all of a sudden, and then it's not about the acting. It's like, you know, you, they, have to be, they have to be white characters because that's just how the story goes, right? So on one hand, we, we pick and choose when we want to um, stand for an issue. I think the line in, in Ms. Marvel's case is, is a tricky one. Um, and I think it, partly it's, it's tricky because of you only get one shot. Um, as much as I'm looking forward to this series and I love the books and, you know, I'm excited she's going to be in Captain Marvel 2. It's one of those properties that they can easily say, just like in the comic book industry, oh, this title ah, is not selling that well. We haven't really given it that much of a promotional push, but we're going to just shelve it. You know, let's try and have a massive reboot and reboot the Hulk again. You know, like the Hulk will always have a chance to to succeed, whereas Miss Marvel doesn't. So it's, it's a fine line. I, I don't have the answers completely. I think you need the changes in the room, and I need to see who the creatives are in the room, and who are the casting directors, who's the director working on those episodes, because a lot of the times people, especially in minority groups who are supposed to be casted for a particular role, don't even get a chance to walk in the door. Exactly. You know, it's why you can have a film like Ghost in the Shell with Scarlett Johansson and, you know, it create a huge storm. And then they kind of retrofit that the character was Asian at one point and then something else happened. Right. Or Ghost in the Shell, even a, a better example, Scarlett Johansson gets casted and the creators just naturally assumed that a white woman would be playing the role. Mm-hmm. Right. They never even thought that a Asian person could be casted in Hollywood in that film, just to show you the mindset of who gets through the door and, and who doesn't. So Ms. Marvel is a very interesting case. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I don't, I think the line is a fine one. I don't think for the stuff where people are like a, you know, Trump supporter, what have you. Um, I know there was one individual that they casted that apparently had a, a criminal record or some, some type of altercation with the lie. I, I yes. couldn't quite follow that story yes. to me that seems a little more problematic Dubious. yes for sure um again there will some people will say well people should be given second chances they should have a chance to reform but 
we also are very finicky about who in entertainment we give second chances to. Um, and this is one of those situations where I need to know a little bit more about what this individual did um, and how long did that person really have time to reflect on, on what they've done. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll use an example for, you know, in the sports world, I don't know if you remember, but this year, I guess during the pandemic, the NHL had a draft and I think it was the Phoenix Coyotes. Yeah. He, they, 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 they actually cut him. Yeah. Because they of dra- past they drafted social a media player conduct. Who um, had social media issues, but also he was bullying. He had, he was mm-hmm. bullying a, was it a teammate? No, it was a, well, when he was in, high school i mean well, I right he's, yeah dra- he's coming out of high school getting drafted or college or whatever but in school he was bullying a black student with disabilities and he had bullied yes. him for years made his yeah. life uh hell. Hell. anyway the guy gets drafted to the nhl and stories start coming out people are like i can't believe that no one did the proper due process in terms of checking mm-hmm. this guy's character and everyone said oh well He's, he's changed. We need, he should be given a chance to grow. And it's like, okay, but you're saying he should be given a chance to grow while having this huge opportunity to become a superstar. You know, like essentially the argument is, well, let them have his career and then hopefully he will grow as he's going through his career. And it's like, well, it, life doesn't work that way because if it was the other way around, I'm pretty sure there would be fire and brimstone if it was, you know, the black guy well, coming after, after him. Well, you know, not to shift it to sports too much, but just look at a sport like hockey, which we both follow, and look at how players who are extremely successful, but their conduct doesn't fit within the parameters of what is considered hockey culture, but might be totally acceptable in basketball, baseball, football. They are not necessarily given the same sort of um, leeway to be themselves. Um, you know, we could, we could name PK Subban, you know, Vander Kane, just as two where they're, they're judged by the hockey culture quite differently than someone else and their transgressions. I'm using that in quotations. Doesn't even match what other players might've done. Yep. Um, you know, and yet they don't get the same pass. Yeah. There's, there's, there's varying scales and you know, the, just to put a little bow on the, the sports portion, Austin Matthews is another perfect example where he was out with some friends. You know, he's a star player on the Toronto Maple Leafs, got drunk. They harassed a female officer. And if you listen to how the coverage was before the season started, and this was just before COVID hit and everything, the reports were, you know, what he did was bad. But, you know, guys go out, they have a couple of drinks, these things happen. Whereas Evander Kane poses with a photo where he has a stack of like $100 bills. Yes. Um, mimicking Floyd Mayweather, who did Mayweather. that. Right. And he got raked over the coals. That's terrible. You shouldn't be flaunting money. What about the people who don't have it? And like, there was, I looked at him, and he took a photo in his own home that was an homage to this other sports photo and you would have thought that they wanted this man out of the NHL altogether. Whereas this person harassed a woman, harassed a police officer, you know, people who are very much law and order. And he, they all just went, eh, it's it's bad. He should apologize. But 
his career shouldn't be in jeopardy or question for that one incident. You go, but this, it doesn't work that way, right? So Ms. Marvel, again, the opportunity to even correct those flaws. They only have one shot. I, I, I wish it was different. I have nothing but hope that that show will be a huge success and that that character inspires a whole new um, audience because I don't think people realize how many new fans Marvel exactly bring in. Exactly. That's done right. And not just fans that come to the streaming service, but fans that will then run out and pick up the graphic novels to catch up on the lore and whatnot the, the toys like there's there's so many avenues and get, and it's it right. and it's not it's not just that it's the payoff five ten years from now where yep. the creators of the next idea franchise will look like the titular character in miss marvel yeah right you you like Okay, I I grew up under the Stan Lee um, umbrella, right? That wave with Kirby and Stan Lee and um, Neil Adams. And they gave us the Falcon, Black Panther, Luke Cage on DC, Black Lightning. I think that's Tony Isabella's character. But now you have creators like the Ryan Kuglers who are taking their knowledge, their skill set, and creating the movies that have those characters in it. And then you're going to have the creators that look like the Ryan Kuglers creating their own characters with their own mythology, pulling from mm -hmm. African mythology or Central American or um, Asian mythology. And that's what actually then makes things expand and be better and gives you a, a, a richer tapestry of the things that we like to watch. Yeah, and I, and I think for me, I'm actually more excited about this phase of Marvel, of Star Wars, of name the, the five or so major IP properties because now you have a chance to really change the game. Um, I, as you said, you grew up under the Stanley Jack Kirby versions of of these heroes and there's only a handful of them that you can really name you know yeah you grew up under Falcon but was Falcon really that huge of a character Falcon has always kind of been like the perpetual sidekick he's Robin and, yeah or Robin <laughs> like and, and not even not even Robin becoming Nightwing and I know no, Falcon exactly. had his own comics but it's different he's still the the sidekick you know, like he, he has to get a show with Winter Soldier. Exactly. Instead of getting his own show kind of thing. Whereas if someone was to get their own show, I'm pretty sure Winter Soldier would have had his own show, right? Just in terms of like how he was introduced, he got to be a central villain and a hero. He gets the full kind of arc. But people, what people forget is that, that those characters were also made in a time where the notion of diversity in terms of storytelling, um, visible diversity and inclusion was non-existent, partly because all the creators looked a certain way. They, for the most part, existed and worked with people that looked like them. So now I know there's a lot of people that complain that, oh, there's too much diversity. Why does everything have to be about uh, 
thing. Why can't we just tell stories? I was like, well, no, we've always told stories. And these film, these film shows, books will all continue to tell stories, but there's a whole rich tapestry that hasn't been tapped yet. You know, there's, there's so many different ways you could take it. Like I, I, I'm heartened that my kids who are still very young and, you know, they're now growing up in that age where they're going to be big consumers of all these properties. You know, these are the, why Marvel and Disney are coming out with tons of content because as they grow up, this is what they are starting to consume. They have, you know, the Luke dolls, the Captain America, the Peter Parker figurines, but they also have like Miles Morales. They've got Black Panther and Killmonger and Shuri. Shuri, you know, my daughter's playing with a Shuri toy. Like to think 10, 20 years ago, that would have just seemed preposterous, right? You just kind of play with whatever Wonder Woman, Black Widow. The question would, would have been what, other than Storm, who would your daughter have been able to play with as an action figure? Exactly. And I know people will say, well, it's not about gender. Like she could have played with Batman and Superman. And exactly. And she will as well. Children play with everything. But when people go to the store and, you know, you're going to buy your little daughter or, or your son. Actually, we'll use the son as an example. So 15 years ago, a person goes to the store and they go to get their, their son a action hero. Chances are they're going for Batman, Superman. They might give them Wonder Woman, but they also might go, oh, I don't want them playing with Wonder Woman because, you know, back then the idea was boys play with a certain type of toy, girls play with a certain toy. So the daughter would get Wonder Woman, the boy would get Superman. Now we're in an age where the boy can get Wonder Woman. He can also get Shuri. He can get Storm. He can get Black um, Widow. Black Widow. You know, he could if you want to go Disney, whatever, he can play with Mulan and it's not an For issue. Sure. But, the fact, but the fact that you even have those toys as options, right? Like there's, there's a, a cultural mindset that has taken forever for the wheels to turn. And I'm, I'm going to throw this out there because I think even though there wasn't a lot of representation in the industries back then, Stan and Jack and those creators who were like-minded allowed people into a window to see into a window of what it was like to be someone else. Right. And now you have that many more opportunities and that's why I welcome a wide range of creators. Um, because you can't live a life other than your own. And depending on where you live, depending on how tolerant you are or the people around you are, you're going to be, a lot of other people's stories are going to be alien to you. But, yep. you know, when you are then introduced to certain creators and certain characters and certain existences, and, and then you realize that it, in the end, even though the story may not initially be something that appeals to you, but if it's done well and it connects to you, you realize that there is validation in something that is not you. And then that brings understanding and it may be a little bit rough now, but as more people are introduced to these kind of stories and know that these kind of creators exist, then it becomes second nature and you don't even think about it as much, mm -hmm. right? You're not even like, I'm hoping that in 15 years, hopefully sooner, we don't even have to worry about trying to find out if Miss Marvel is going to be a legitimate property or, or a character 
um, yep. that is similar. It's just like, oh, okay, this is the story. That's who the lead is. Excellent. Let's go. Let's watch it. And then we judge it on its merits. Yeah. And that, that, ideally, that's the goal. You know, that's um, on my podcast, Changing Girls, I say that, that a lot. Like the, the goal is that we don't even need to have conversations like this. Like, you know, when you go to the store to pick up something for your child, you will pick up that Asian action figure, that black action figure without even thinking, oh, well, my child may not be Asian or they may not be black, all right? Like there's, you know, there's certain wiring that a lot of us from a certain age have grown up with where you were so used to just picking up characters that look like Bruce Wayne that you assumed, well, everyone loves Bruce Wayne, right? It's like, Mm -hmm. well, yeah, so a lot of people love Batman, but some people would like to see some other types of Bruce Waynes out there. But, you know, there's, I, I always say that people don't necessarily think about diversity or race until they are put in a, in a rare situation where they're the marginalized group. Right. Uh, so like you, you go to a, a club or a bar that you normally go to, and then you realize, Oh, for some reason it's hip hop night. And all of a sudden <laughs> you're, you're now the odd person out. Right. Or, yeah. you know, and I know there's tons of, of country fans, so I'm not knocking that, but, I, I can recall going to a bar with friends one night um, several years ago before I was married and it was like country night, you know, and a lot of people don't know what it's like to walk into a bar or I'll even say a restaurant in a small town as an example and have the room literally stop and slowly turn and look and go, oh, that's different because they haven't seen a person that looks like me in that establishment for quite some time or it's very rare. Mm-hmm. eventually go back to do their thing as if nothing happens but that there's that brief moment of having a room stop and look at you is a feeling you don't forget and there's a lot of people who have never experienced that you right. know so if, if you think of it and on a micro level when it comes to comics films what have you people have gone to movies picked up comics and have always seen themselves reflected that it's never an issue right but if they were to accidentally walk into a store that is all South Asian characters. For a brief moment, they'll go, wait, wait, what's, this doesn't seem, they might stay there and, and look, or they might go, oh, no, no, this is, isn't for me, right? So we need to get to that point where they can walk in there, even if it's accidentally, and go, hey, this seems pretty cool. What, what do you got? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And I want to get back to um, the streaming, because I know you do a lot of reviews. You go to um, yes. festivals like TIFF, as well as a lot of... Um, film festivals either online or smaller ones in the city. And what do you think this potential move or this shift towards streaming coupled with how the pandemic shut down everything this year, right? Um, how do you think that's going to affect um, film festivals moving forward? Film festivals, I think it's going to, it's going to put a bit of a strain on them financially. Um, because now you have to shift your your whole infrastructure. Like you have to create online, you have to have a, a, a strong online platform. You now have to think of, do filmmakers want their their product now to be debuted on a streaming service opposed to the theatrical experience where they intended it to? You also have to think of security. You know, will people be able to hack into it, put it online? Um, I... 
again, I'm torn about it because I feel that right now it's if you're going to have a film festival, then put it online. Do that. I think you can moving forward. I think you can have both. I think you can have the theatrical um, experience, the glitz and glamour, and also an online portion. Because again, this pandemic has made me think a lot about accessibility to things. I mean, especially being in places where things are locked down, you start to think of, well, what about the people, again, with physical disabilities or people who don't live in a theater-rich city like Toronto? How do they get to experience these type of um, films, right? So I think you can have, I think you can have both existing. I don't think um, streaming is going to kill the theatrical experience because people have been saying that for the last 10, 15 years, you know, as Netflix got bigger, streaming is going to kill theaters. Theaters are still, we're still making record profits. I think if anything, what this will do for festivals is force them to reevaluate what they're selling. And I'll use TIFF as an example, because TIFF is, it went from being this small kind of run people's festival to this massive celebrity rich Oscar prognosticator, you know, industry player type of thing. And for the last couple of years, TIFF has struggled to find its identity because you have film festivals like Toyride, Venice, all these other places are doing their festivals, similar to the streaming wars. Mm-hmm. You had Netflix and now you got a whole bunch of streaming services fighting for space. So as a festival, TIFF has had to try and rethink of what they want to be and the type of festival they want to be. But for years, the last few years, they were able to sell celebrity to justify the high ticket prices. So if you wanted to see a film and potentially see someone famous, that's a different tier for cost, right? And then they had wealthy donors. Like it, it, It's tougher and tougher to get those tickets. And a smaller film from Africa, Indonesia, which is really cool, a lot of fun, doesn't get that same kind of hype. It almost kind of gets pushed down the mammoth roster of 300 films. Now, with the pandemic, they've had to shrink the size of their festival, which means they have to be a little more careful about the type of films that they want to show. You know, they almost have to shine a little more light on the smaller films. Um, because you're not getting every Julia Roberts film that you might have gotten previously. So I think it's going to just cause a lot of these festivals to to rethink their strategy. I don't think it will kill a lot of them. Some Some smaller ones might, but I think if anything, a bigger issue is just theatrical space. Um, I think this pandemic has is going to really impact regular theaters and also multiplexes because the independent theaters at least in toronto were already struggling before the pandemic because cineplex which is our big theater chain here in toronto was the was monopolizing everything they were literally like knocking out the amcs the landmarks they were just cleaning house and then they were also curbing second run theaters independent theaters from from showing film second run mm-hmm. so you might they Cineplex might show Captain Marvel for three weeks and then normally what would happen, go to a second run theater before hitting streaming or DVD. But they were blocking the second run theaters from getting access to those titles. 
So they were already strategically putting the vice grip and kind of eking out the um, competition. But now, because they're massive chains, they're really hurting because no one's coming to the theaters. Theaters are being shut down or they've had to open with very limited capacity. So now it's getting tougher to for them to justify their ticket prices to keep all of their extra stuff going. So I think that's where streaming is going to change the game for like, you know, people are going to start to question, well, do I need to go to the theater for X-Men if I know it's going to come on streaming the other day, uh, you know, two weeks from now, or in some cases, same day, but also do I need to go to the theater for X-Men when I know the person beside me is going to be on their phone the entire time? The seats are going to be thinking that, you know, the kid behind me is going to keep screaming and talking. The, Kicking the, woman the back that, of your chair. The woman that saw the film the day earlier is coming back and telling her friend all the things that are about to happen. Although, you know? although, and we've both seen films in the West Indies. Sometimes that makes a film. <laughs> yes. And I, I'm, I don't think the theatrical, don't get me wrong, I don't think the theatrical experience will die. I think it will survive um, because... The theater, there's a certain joy to going to the theater. Like as, you said, as an example, you know, Midnight Madness at TIFF. Yes. Oh my God, that is an experience. If you've never had the opportunity to do it, and hopefully it it comes around again, that transforms um, the experience of watching a film. Yeah, it can take. You know, the theatrical experience could take a film that is bad. Like, I'll use the example Too Fast, Too Furious, which you know <laughs> we saw in Barbados, and it's not a good movie. But no. when you see it with a live interactive crowd, yes, that was one of the greatest cinematic experiences ever. I've ever had. You know, seeing Get Out in a theater with people mm -hmm. and having the people jump at the right moment, or you can feel the collective holding of breath towards the end of the film. Like there, there right. are tons of great experiences, and that will never go. What I'm saying is, I think streaming is changing the necessity of having all of these massive cineplexes that are costing when like for example wonder woman even though it's same day um it's coming in canada on christmas day on video on demand for 30 dollars in a household of four you don't necessarily get to get to the theater every weekend every time there's a major blockbuster so a household of four might get to the theater let's say six times a year maybe more but let's just for average six times a year the average ticket price for yourself, your wife, your kids, or whoever think is going to cost way more than the $30. That's just to oh, get in. Absolutely. And then concession, which is marked up ridiculously, but you know, the, the popcorn, the drinks, that's, and so by the end of the night, you're spending well over a hundred dollars, you know, maybe 150 bucks to see a film that may or may not be good. Yeah. Whereas at home, you're spending $30, you know, you can kind of control the noise level of your house or whether or not people are on, or you can really immerse When you yourself. can see it too, right? When you can see it, you can see it at exactly your own advantage. How many times have you wanted to see something and you realize, oh, the times aren't that convenient. So then you right. have to rearrange your entire schedule. Like there, there are conveniences to, to streaming. And I think financially for a lot of families, it, there are benefits to that. I don't, again, I don't think it's going to eliminate that experience of, wanting to go to the theater especially in like 2020 2021 where so many people are stuck at home mm -hmm. the last thing they're going to want to do is be stuck at home again to watch things all the time they're going to want to go out 
have yes. dinner, yeah. go. So they're going to still want that experience. I think it just changes the, you know, not ever. Look, Doctor Doolittle does not need to necessarily be in a multiplex. You know, the Robert Downey Jr. Even if you know studios are dumping it in January because they already know it's terrible, but yet they want you to to pay you know, $100 all said and done so that you can go out and see this really bad movie, whereas you could have watched it at home for for 30 bucks or, or less, you know? So, because a couple of things just popped into my head. The VIP experience, mm-hmm. like that, that could be either a boom or a bust, depending on how people feel about congregating in crowds again, as well as having the comfort of watching stuff at home. But I'm also thinking about the independent filmmaker and does this now provide them with an opportunity to get their films seen a little bit more? Or does this now hamper them? I, I, I think it's a bit of a gift and a curse for independent filmmakers because I would argue that before the pandemic, the streaming services were the only, not the only, but they were the most beneficial place for independent filmmakers. Netflix I'll use that as an example. They were giving a lot of money away to creators, both big and small. So you could have a film like Roma. You could have Scorsese do The Irishman thing, but you could also have small films like um, Tiger Tail or uh, a whole slew that are blocking my mind at the moment, um, where people could get their film made and be exposed to a wider audience like as much as we love the theatrical experience and i'll say myself in particular i have noticed over the last 20 years it is getting harder to see things that aren't big tentpole titles even in my area where there's at least three theaters within driving distance of like 20 minutes if i wanted to see a smaller film like Sorry to Bother You, I would have to drive downtown to go see it because in the suburbs, for some reason, they're not playing that. They've got four screens for for Spider-Man, maybe two screens for whatever the big rom-com is. And then, you know, you might get, at least in my area, they have a couple of screens set aside for like the big Bollywood titles, which is, is great. But outside of that, for me to go see Sorry to Bother bother you or something like the farewell which is really good smaller film i have to drive all the way downtown so now mm-hmm. that means i have to pay for parking downtown right i have to pay downtown prices that's also probably like an hour commute depending on traffic to get there also an hour commute to come back and then i've also got a limited window of when the film is playing all right like so when you factor in all of that there's times where you're like oh man as, as much as i love seeing in the theater it would have also been great if my own area had it on the theater. But because of that, if I have to watch it on streaming service, then, you know, that's a bit of it. So there's, there's pros and cons, depending on how you look at it. I think as much as these theater companies are complaining about losing money, I'm talking about the major chains, not the independent ones, because the independent ones at least do a good job of showing works from, from independent artists. A lot of these major chains are, are what are dominating the areas that people live, and they're not showing these type of films. So as an independent filmmaker, you can make a movie and you might get a week if mm. that or three days in a, a major theater. So whereas streaming services are at least, you know, giving you a chance to 
show your work, but also reach a far bigger audience than you would have in the two days in the theater. So I, I, I mean, I know there's gonna be a lot of industry people that will say it's, it's killing the, the industry. Well, I, I think it's, it's hurting a certain portion of it, but I also see it as a, a way to give smaller theaters a chance to thrive again. Like, I think it's, it's hurting the monopolies right now. Um, and we'll see what, what comes of it. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a lot of, a lot of things to look forward to just to see how things are going to play out because I think there's going to be a, a, a tsunami of change uh, throughout entertainment um, from being on set and, and on to, you know, the movie, the multiplexes. So it'll be interesting to see how 2021 um, shapes up and then what happens into 22 and 23. Um, I'm not quite sure how it's going to play out because I'm optimistic, but there's that part of me, you know, you see how records have turned into CDs that turned into MP3s, which now turns into Spotify. Um, and you know, I'm just wondering what the shift will be for film. True. But I would argue that and that's and that's a good example, but I would I would argue that what we are talking about ultimately is luxury, because records you're right they turn into CDs they turn into MP3s they turn into st- streaming Spotify Apple Podcasts yeah. or iTunes what have you, but there's also a huge record market that's now open back. It's almost yes. like collectibles or. Yeah. or people who still collect like rare comics, you know, it's records have become a, dare I say it, it's, it's almost a status symbol. A those niche, who can, niche yeah, status. Niche status, <laughs> those who can afford, but there's a lot of people like there's, there's still yeah. a lot of places where you can go and buy records because yeah, man. it's good become, to see actually. Yeah, I, it's, I, it's I like almost like it. art where, you know, you could be a collector. It's almost like you're one of the uber cool kids now when, you know, you have Fiona Apple's latest album on record. You didn't just download the, the Apple or Spotify version. You got the record or, you know, you can show Instagram footage of your, of your, what's spinning on your record player. So I think when we talk about theater, a lot of the times and I, any type of, of art, I will say, um, whether it's movie theater, television, actual live theater, there's a certain level of status to who has access to it. I have several streaming services that I know my neighbor doesn't have. Um, you know, they, they just can't afford all those streaming services. And I can't even afford some of the streaming services that some of my other film folks have. Like I know people that are right. subscribing to everything. Right. So there's, there's different tiers. That's why I feel that movie theaters have survived world wars. They've survived the invention of VCRs, laserdiscs, DVD players, streaming services. I think there's certain institutions and certain forms of entertainment that will exist. Live theater is a perfect example. Film was supposed to kill that. You know, home video streaming was supposed to kill that, but try getting tickets to Hamilton. You know, it's yeah. very tough to do, right? Like it's, even with this pandemic, as much as it's, you know, shut down Broadway and um, up here, our Mervish theaters, what have you, 
I'm pretty sure once things open back up, they're going to be hot commodities again, right? Because there's certain experiences that people still want to have. And especially if, if you have the financial means, it's almost a status symbol to say that you've had those experiences, you know? So, yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I, I think for sure, um, like live concerts, there's certain things that you can't replicate with even the best sound bar and a 75 inch, you know, 4k television. Um, sports, there's an aspect of sports that you miss, um, the play by play, that kind of stuff. But being there also has, uh, an irreplaceable kind of factor to it. And, um, and, and theater as well too. Like there's something about a live performance. Um, but I, I just, you know, it's, it's will, will, and you said comfort and not just comfort, but then what were you born into? So will putting up with certain things that we don't like about the theater experience or even with comics and, and TV shows, um, will we put up with those or the, the generations that come put up with those? Um, if they, if, if, it, if that experience wasn't germane to them taking in that form of entertainment, I, like, I wonder. Um, that's interesting. I think, I think they will, but I don't know. I, I feel like I'm, I have a, a different view partly because my love of film didn't come from going to the theater as much as I love and cherish the theater. Now growing up, going to the movies in the actual theater was like a rare privilege. Mm -hmm. So I could tell you from, I guess maybe age eight to 13, almost like a handful of films that I remember seeing in the theater. Cause I watched everything on television or right. to date myself VHS back then you know or whatever the the platform is and so i grew up knowing that and i still love the theatrical experience because to me the theatrical experience was a treat right so going to seeing a live sporting event to me is still a treat because i can't afford to go see the raptors every week i can't afford to see whatever you know sports team you're into it's, it's kind of a, a rare treat where some people who buy season tickets you know to them it's just kind of nothing but even there there's a certain level of braggadocious of like oh well i was there when carter scored 30 30 in that one quarter and what have or, you right? or, so, or, or Kawhi had eight bounces before he you know eliminated the 76ers exactly but most of the most of the, the sports that we watch if you really think about it are on television you know if you want you watch it with the commentator on sometimes the commentating is annoying so you just mm -hmm. watch it with the sound off right like our our experiences with these things that we think are going to die without, if you know, no one is there, isn't quite that. Like, I don't feel as much as I love sports, I don't feel we should have sports during this pandemic. You know, <laughs> I'll still watch it if it's on, but yeah. I, it's more of, I don't want them to have it on, but if you're yeah. going to put it on and these people are risking their lives, like, you know, as an NBA fan, I'm going to watch, as much NBA games as possible, because at least these guys are putting their life on to quote unquote entertain me. They're putting their life at risk. Yeah. Whereas I know at the end of the day, it's really they're putting their life at risk so that the owners can make money. You know, they keep talking about, oh, well, the, the if they don't have live fans and they're going to lose money, right? Similar to the theater. If we don't have people in our seats, we're going to lose money. Whereas sports franchises are slightly different is because, well, 
you're still making money from a whole bunch of other revenues. Well, TV money. Their TV deal is what drives TV most money, of it. merchandise, yeah. what have you. So, you know, and I, I know that I think the Boston Celtics and a few other organizations, maybe the Buffalo Bills, when the pandemic first hit, they weren't paying the, the staff that run the concessions and whatnot because, oh, well, right. no one's coming. It's tough times. But yet the players were turning out out of their own pockets and covering the salaries for mm-hmm. a couple of months for these people. And I go, well, wait a minute. If your employoees are covering the fees of other employees, then something wrong with your system. Because Absolutely. I don't see any of these sports teams going under. You know, the Dallas Cowboys aren't going to file for bankruptcy if there's no people in the stands because they've got tons of revenue, right? So, they're a global brand, right? So they're exactly. fine. Um, I, I know theaters are slightly different because you don't, you don't have that, but in many ways, a lot of the theaters now are owned by two or three companies. So they've monopolized the, the industry and now they're starting to feel the, the side effects of being the only game in town and no one wanting to come and see you, see your stuff. Right. So, yeah. but I, I don't, I feel like we like to cry wolf a little too much for the things that we love. Um, and you know, we could tie this back into some of the other stuff that we've mentioned, you know, if you change that, what I love, or you do not give me the exact same thing that I love, it's, it's all over. The, the whole world is going to collapse. You know, if you give me a star Wars film without Luke Skywalker, it, it can't be done. And then you find out, well, actually, no, you, you can't do it. You know, we, we did it once and it made a whole bunch of money. We can do it again. You just, you have to change your, your mindset a bit. Mm-hmm. I, again, I think I could be just be an optimist, but I feel that the theater, the theatrical experience will survive this pandemic because there's tons of content as is. So you could push Fast and Furious 9. They could have pushed Dune, Wonder Woman back to 2021, 2022. And I guarantee you when it hits the theater, there will be people there to see it. Those who can't get to it in the theater could watch it at home that's fine but a lot of people are going to want to get their buddies together you know have a a date night you know again we've been in we've been many of us have been locked indoors for what will essentially be a year and a half two years depending on how long this pandemic goes people are going to want to get out couples are going to want to get away from their kids Mm -hmm. so they're going to go to the theater like i you know whether or not you have theaters that are you know 18 cinemas 20 cinemas you might not have that anymore. You might have them slightly reduced or they might just change some of the, the way you consume that experience. But if you think about it, it's, it's a lot of it's digital now. Anyway, you go to the theater for in Canada, we have what's called time play, which is like an interactive online game. Then there's interactive commercials, you know, like they, they make the experience almost as if you were sitting at home anyway. So then to turn around and say, Oh, streaming's killing the industry when, I feel like in many ways you're, you're almost getting half of that same experience in the theaters. I, I just don't buy it. And I'm going to, I'm going to add this one thing before we end. If you go back even 25 years, right. When like Fox was coming on as a, as a network. Um, and before things like the CW, it was really hard to get content. I would say that we're in the, in like, if, in terms of consuming content, narratives, 
um, movies. We're in a golden age, whether it's, you know, podcasts, animation, we're, we're getting everything that we want. And in a way, I'm not saying this as it's too much, but it's almost too much because you can't watch everything. Like when you think of how much is being produced and back in the day, if you didn't get ABC, NBC, CBS, and then up here in Canada, you would get like, you know, CTV, which would then give you the Canadian commercials, but still simulcast um, the American shows. You didn't get anything like you, like you're pretty much down to those three networks. And now that you have HBO, which, you know, has grown from home box office to be, you know, basically a streaming service and a movie house at the same time, Netflix, um, Showtime, the, the, the list is endless of where you can go and get um, content. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. And I, I completely agree that we have too much and I always shake my head when people say that, you know, Netflix, or at least Netflix Canada, oh, there's nothing good on to watch, or oh, there's nothing good on Prime. There's too much. If you're, if you're just looking for the same five blockbusters that you either missed in theater or that you saw in theater, you watch again, then yeah, there's not going to be. But there's, there's so much that it forces you, like you can't, people can't keep up, so they don't know what is good because there's just too much. Netflix drops a new film every week. Mm-hmm. It's tough to keep up. Would we have known about the Tiger King documentary if it didn't start creating a buzz? <laughs> like, if you really think about it, if you if you really think about it, right? This is showing uh, twenty years. We were all stuck at home, and that show started picking up buzz, so that people that normally don't even like documentaries or docu series were all hooked on Tiger King. Why? Because they, they had a captive of, audience. They had a captive Literally. audience, but there was no big names. Yeah, it you know it was just a very odd story, and now you know there are household names. One Carol Baskin's on Dancing with the Stars, what have you. If you don't watch Tiger King, there are a whole slew of other shows to watch. Yeah, as a person who's a film like my film queue on Netflix is massive, and then there's still some shows because sometimes you don't want to watch a movie. I have other shows in my queue, like there's some series that I've started. And I'm halfway through and I have to get back to like, there's just too much content, which is why I thought Warner brothers could have held all their stuff till after the pandemic. Even if you want to do the same day and date, wait till everything is done. Like I, I want to see wonder woman 1984. I love the first wonder woman that Patty Jenkins did, but I can wait. I've got Mm. so many other things to watch. There's so many, I have what, three different streaming services that I barely put a dent in because on top of that, we don't have time. <laughs> no, you know, we, no, it's true. We're in a pandemic. People have lost their jobs. They're dealing with mental health issues. You know, they can't just sit at home all the time and, and watch television. They got to find other ways to occupy themselves, go for a walk, renovations, what have you. And there's still not enough time to get through anything. Like if you think about, binging a series how long does it take to binge even an eight episode 13 episode series you know you're up at two in the morning yeah still watching this thing and then like oh i gotta go to sleep but then what do i start the next series like there's there's just too much content so we we're being spoiled right now and again we're indulging 
in a lot of privilege that others don't have. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I, I feel that if anything, we're, we're just adapting to this, this new world. I don't know if we necessarily need with, with the changes that are going on. I don't know if we necessarily need like Spider-Man three, bringing back everybody. I don't know if we need. <laughs> Considering they did it in the animated um, Spider-Verse so exactly. well. They did exactly. it so well. And how do you do this without announcing that you're going to have Miles Morales in this movie? That's just right? my own little, my own little gripe, but. Right. You know, right. Unless. The Spider-Verse was so good. Uh, that I don't necessarily even need. I know they're going to do them, but I don't even need another Spider-Man film right now. I don't need Indy 5. I know they're still coming down the pipe, but if, if they were to say we have Indy 5 ready, it's going to drop, you know, let's do it right now. I was like, no, no, just I'll go see it in theaters, but just wait. Like it's not worth risking our lives for entertainment when we have so much other content to pass the time right. until this thing gets over. And, and we will get through this. It's just, I don't necessarily understand the, the rush and the, the, the rash decisions that aren't thinking past this pandemic. Mm. It's almost like we've run a marathon, but now we're going to, we can see the finish line and we want to run a hundred yard dash. Exactly. But not thinking that when you, after you run that dash, your limbs are going to be fractured. You know, you're, <laughs> yeah. you just, your body. There's nothing left after. There's nothing left. So, yeah. and what, what's next? Like some of these streaming services are going to end up folding, not because of, theaters coming back it's just because there's so much content that not everyone's going to be able to afford to subscribe no to that plus cable internet fees alone oh, are yes. going to be where most people's um money gets spent because we need connection we need our wi-fi for our phones for half of our streaming services we need that right so even if you cut cable or whatnot there's still a lot of expenses so after a while these things start adding up Will HBO survive? I, I, I'm putting more money on the theaters than I am on HBO Max, but that's just just me. Oh, great, great. Well, Court, I had a fantastic time chatting with you and catching up. Um, where can people catch you when you're not reviewing films? Uh, they can catch me on Twitter. I'm at SmallMind. Um, my podcast, Changing Reels, which talks about uh, diversity and representation in cinema. You can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, wherever you are listening to this podcast, most likely you'll find it. Um, and we have a Twitter account there at Changing Reels AC. And um, you can find me on Rotten Tomatoes. Most of my reviews are up there, and that has a link to different sites that I contribute to. But thank you for having me. It was a wonderful time. No, it was great. It was great. It's always, always good to chat, fun to chat movies with you. All right. Well, thanks again, and uh, you stay safe. Thanks for listening, everyone. And once again, a special thank you to Courtney Small. We look forward to your comments, so reach out to us on Facebook and at Comics Asylum on Instagram and Twitter.